And if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3, that's page 217 in the church Bibles, or 333 in the large print. Joshua chapter 3, and this evening we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 verse 1. All of us, I'm sure, know what it's like to wait for something, whether that be something exciting that's coming in the post, whether that be for a birthday or for Christmas or even uh, for a wedding, as I know some are waiting with excitement for that as well. But imagine if you get to the day of your birthday or your wedding or Christmas day or something like that, and then when you arrive at the day, you're told, Oh, we're just going to wait a few more days. Just a few more days. How disappointing. How annoying. How frustrating. I don't know how exactly you would feel. But take that feeling and place that into Joshua chapter 3 and verse 1. Israel had been waiting for 40 years for this day to arrive. The day that they were going to go into the promised land. They were going to cross uh, the Jordan and go in and take the land that God had promised them. The scouts had come back from Jericho. They'd given a good report. They'd said, everyone's melting in fear because of us. The Lord has definitely given us this land. We can go. All that was left to do was to take it. Look at verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. They were obviously excited. He was up early in the morning. When we're excited, we get up early in the morning, don't we? But look at the beginning of verse 2. Look what happens. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp. They got up early in the morning with this sense of excitement, this sense of anticipation And then they've got to camp out for three days. They've been camping for 40 years. And God says, three more days. They have to be there for three more days. And if you look down chapter 3 to verse 15, we can imagine how they would be feeling at this time. It says, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. That's a little bit in the story that's placed there, and it's placed there to show the dire situation that the Israelites were in. The river was at flood stage, and they were supposed to cross. This wasn't just a little stream. They had to like hop over the rocks to get to the other side. This was at flood stage. And so they've waited 40 years. They've come, and they've got a camp, and then for three days... Rather than cross, they've got to look at this river at flood stage and wonder how on earth are we going to get across. And the longer they would have been there, no doubt, the more scary perhaps this would have become. Why did God make them wait three days? Why is it that God waited till it was at flood stage before he decided 
to cross. Well, sometimes God makes us wait. Sometimes God makes us look at a difficult situation so that we can see that the only way we can be delivered is if God delivers us. And this is a key point of this whole account in Joshua 3 and 4. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times in this passage. And throughout the crossing of the Jordan, the reader of the story never loses sight of the Ark. Our eye is always on it. And that's because the Ark was representing the presence of God. And so the focus of the people And our focus as readers, as they cross, is on the ark. Because it is God who is directing things here. The impossible task is not impossible when the God of the earth is in control of all the things that are going on. And as we go through this passage, we see some exhortations for us. But in the midst of all that's going on, we must remember that it's the Lord that's in control. And it's to him We give the glory for what's going on. Now, I don't know what your situations exactly are, what what you're facing, like the Israelites here. Sometimes we face uh, family situations, financial difficulties and sicknesses, and we have unsaved relatives, and we wonder, how on earth can we get through this? But the message of this passage is it's God who brings us through doesn't mean that everything's going to melt away and and be, be perfect, this side of heaven at least. But the promise is, as we focus on God, he gets us through. So what are these exhortations in this passage? Well, first of all, we're told to prepare ourselves for God to work. They were camping for three days, and we've seen verses one and two. But look at verses 3 and 4, beginning of, we'll start at the beginning of verse 2. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Well, the officers go in the camp with these Israelites looking at the Jordan and they give orders. And there's three things that they tell the Israelites to do. First of all, know the instructions. Know the instructions. Know what to do. And really, there was one main instruction. Look at the ark. Look at the ark. They had to keep focus on the ark at all times. And then in verse 4 it says, you will know which way to go. And it says that they need to keep a distance, a distance of about 2,000 cubits. 
2,000 cubits is about 3,000 feet, which is actually quite a distance. Why? Well, some believe that it's due uh, to the holiness of God and not going near it, but more likely, it's that from a distance, everyone could see the ark. So I, I stand here at an, at an elevated place, not because I'm an elevated person, but so everyone can see. It's easier for everyone to see me when I stand here at slight, a slight distance. And there's uh, thousands of people that need to see the ark, see where it's going. So they, to stand at a distance so that they all could see. Following the ark is the key instruction here. They had to move by following it so they knew which way to go. And we need to be constantly looking to God and following him. They were to look at the ark, not looking at the river. We are to constantly be looking at God, not just looking down at the troubles that face, face us. We need to follow God by looking at him. So we need to be daily seeking him out in his word, praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Meditating on him, getting to know him more, then we'll know which way to go. And it's amazing how when we face troubles, our prayer times decrease. We close our Bibles and ignore them in case they tell us what we don't want to know, and we avoid church. But the Bible tells us here, clearly, focus on God. Don't close your Bibles, open them. Don't stay away from the prayer closet, go there. Don't avoid church, be there to hear from God and to look upon him. Trouble ought to push us to Jesus, not away from Jesus. They needed to keep looking at the ark. Secondly, in verse 5, they were told to consecrate themselves. Before God would do the amazing things among the people, they had to consecrate themselves. He doesn't say exactly what they did here in order to consecrate themselves, but in other places in the Bible, for example, in Exodus chapter 19, before um, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, the people there had to consecrate themselves, and they did so uh, by washing clothes, abstaining uh, from uh, sex, and... Or, and and, and uh, yeah, those two things actually. Is what, um, so it, we assume that it's the same in Joshua. We would assume it's the same kind of thing. But they had to prepare themselves specially for God to work. And we shouldn't play fast and loose with God. We should have a reverence for who He is. We should prepare our hearts for Him to work, but with confession of sin, with meditation on His glory. Sometimes we wonder, why isn't God working in my life? Why isn't God saving millions and millions of people all over Pelsall? And you might say, because there's not millions in Pelsall. But why isn't he saving everybody in Pelsall? But sometimes God wants us to consecrate ourselves in order for him to really work. If we're not confessing sin, if we're ignoring him, if we're rushing into church unthinking, if we read the scriptures flippantly, and just rush, rush around with our prayers and not spend time with God. If we serve him without dealing with sin, is it any wonder that we can't see God at work? Later on, when we come to chapter 7 
of Joshua and we look at the sin of Achan and how it affected the whole of Israel, we come to realize that the church needs to have people with clean hearts for God to really work. So I'm not saying go home and wash your clothes, but I am saying go home and prepare your hearts. Spend time with God. Don't rush around so busy that you have no time to pray. Spend time with your Father. Consecrate yourselves. And the final instruction they had was to look to the leaders. Look to the leaders. In verse 5, Joshua instructs the people, and in verse 6, he instructs the priests. The priests were the spiritual leaders of the people. And in verse, verse 6, we see that he tells the priests to take up the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So the priests are to lead. Leaders must lead. They must go on ahead so that people can follow. And then in verse 7, we have the statement that Joshua was going to be recognized by everybody as God's chosen leader. So at this point, with this miracle, Joshua was going to be recognized as the leader in Israel. They were to follow their leaders. And responsibility for people to follow their leaders as God chooses is the same for us today. We are responsible to follow those that God has appointed as leaders. Some people have an aversion to this. But we follow leaders that follow God, don't we? The priests had the ark. They were in the presence of God and the people followed. What a blessing it is to have a Joshua, where a leader where God is with them. It's a blessing, isn't it? To have a leader where God is with them, we can follow. And the miracle that was to take place shows God was with Joshua. They could follow him. But in order for the miracle to take place, we see that both the leaders and the people had to step out in faith and then stand still. Look at verses 8 to 17 of chapter 3. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zerathan, while the water flowing down to the Dead Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. 
The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Don't miss verse 8 here. Let me reread verse 8. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. In the river. In the river when the river is at flood stage. Go and stand in it. Don't go stand at the edge of the river and just look in. Get in the river. Go and stand in it. It takes great faith, doesn't it, to obey a command like that? To go and stand in the river. But we can have faith to do this kind of thing because the living God is with us. And the living God, which is how God is described here in verse 10, the living God is among you. The living God is among you. And he is working for us. Joshua also calls him the Lord of all the earth, twice in verses 11 and 13. He's the Lord of all the earth. Not all the earth except this river at flood stage. Not all the earth except for those uh, nations that are mentioned in verse 10. Our God is a living God who is the Lord of all the earth. This miracle is nothing to God. This is nothing to God. He's the living God, the Lord over all the earth. Joshua told the people what God would do. God would show them he is the living God. He will drive out the people from the promised land and he will make the waters of the Jordan pile up in a heap. That means they'll be, it'll be damned. So it will be, stop, to stop flowing. When I was in my office and I was reading this, I'd read it a number of times and then all of a sudden it came to the point where I, I started laughing because I, it suddenly dawned on me that this is true. When sometimes we can read the Bible and we can, we can just not really think about it. But as I was reading it again, I realized this is true. This really happened. This miracle is not just a made-up story. God did this miracle. And the reason I laughed and, and I, I can worship God is because he's the same God today as he was then. I, we worship the same God. So our God... The God we worship today, the God we've been singing to on this Sunday, is the living God who is the Lord of all the earth. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. The living God, the Lord of all the earth, is the same God that we sing to and pray to and worship on this very day. And so when we face a situation that is so difficult, just like the Israelites faced here, We need to remind ourselves, he is the living God. He's not a dead God, he's a living God. And he's the Lord of all the earth, including your life, including your home and your town. And the most amazing work that God has done, which we've sung about this evening, is bringing salvation to us through Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. He is a living God. All other founders of all the false religions in the world have all died. 
Muhammad the prophet, he's dead. Guru Nanak who, with the Sikhs is dead. But Jesus Christ is alive. He is living. He is the living God. The Lord over all the earth. We worship a living God. And we need to remember that. Especially when we're facing difficult situations. Things that are hard and we don't know how we're going to cope. And what we're going to do. We have a living God who is Lord of all the earth. And he knows our situations. And he is alive and he is working for you. And obeying God can be tough. Obeying God can be the difficult thing to do. It can be the thing that's contrary to all worldly wisdom to do. But as we obey God in faith, stepping out into the river, God gets us through. It may be hard right now to trust him. The situations you face may seem beyond you, just like it seemed beyond them all those years ago. But look at what God did. In verses 14 to 17, we see that he parted those waters and they went through. After hearing God speak through Joshua, the people took courage. When it says uh, that they broke camp in verse 14... It literally means they pulled up their tent pegs. So in other words, they didn't just tentatively go, they pulled up their tent pegs. You know if if you've ever been camping, if you pull the tent pegs up and take the tent down, you're ready to go. You don't do that if you're not ready to go, because you've got to do all the work of putting it up again. They pulled up their tent pegs. They were ready to go. They went with everything. They were fully committed. And the priests went in first with the ark. And by the way, God doesn't ever ask us to go anywhere where he isn't already and hasn't already been. God went before them. He was there. And the people followed their leaders as their leaders followed God. And despite it being flood stage, the priests put their feet on the water's edge and they got wet No, they fell in. It all went wrong. No, the water from upstream stopped flowing. As their foot went in, the stream, water from upstream stopped flowing. Amazing. This really happened. (laughs) This is true. Notice, though, that they had to put their feet in first. And this is how faith works, isn't it? We base it on what we know of God. We know he's the living God, the Lord of all the earth, the same God as as did this very miracle, is the same God we worship today. And so based on that knowledge of who God is, we step out in faith. But we step out first, don't we? They have to step out before the waters parted. We take the step before we see God move. And God worked in an amazing way. The waters piled up to a town called Adam, which was about 20 miles away from Jericho. So with this 20-mile stretch, the whole nation had plenty of room to both see the ark and to cross the river. And all of them got to the other side. All of them got to the other side. God did an amazing miracle, amazing work. 
But faith also does something else here. Faith steps out, as we've seen, but notice something else faith does in verse 17 with the priests. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by. If I was there and I'd seen the river on flood stage, I'm picturing myself at this point being told to cross the Jordan. I'm not going to go across slowly. I'm going to run. I'm thinking that river might be coming back down at any minute here. I'm going fast. The priests were told to stay. Stay in the middle of the Jordan till everyone goes by. And it was repeated in chapter 4 and verse 10. In chapter 4 and verse 10 it says, Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. And it says after that, the people hurried over. (laughs) The priests had to stay. The priests had to stay. And sometimes... It takes a lot of faith, doesn't it, to stay when it's easier to run. It takes a lot of faith to stay in a situation when it's easier to run. It takes a lot of faith to stay serving God in church, doesn't it, sometimes, when it's just easier to not bother. Too much hassle. It takes faith to stay. It takes faith to stay working hard in our jobs, doesn't it, when it's easier just to slack off. You can take great faith to stay in a marriage and stay faithful. It can take great faith to stay faithful to God, not married. Faith stays. Faith doesn't run away. It takes a lot of faith to stay, doesn't it? But what makes it easier to step out in faith and to stand still in faith is when we remember what God has done. Let's read chapter 4 together. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulders, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan... The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at a spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over. And as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. 
the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future when your descendants asks their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings on the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. In chapter 3 and verse 12, Joshua uh, was uh, said, choose 12 men from the tribe of Israel, one from each tribe. It seems a strange command in the middle of this story, and the reason for that command is here. Those 12 people would have set up this stone, these stones of remembrance. How easy we forget what God has done. They would forget too. They were told to remember. And that's what the purpose of this chapter is. All 12 tribes, in other words, the whole of Israel, had a representative to pick up a stone from the middle of the river and they had to carry them to the camp on the other side of the Jordan. It seems in verse 9 that Joshua also set up a a, a memorial in the middle of the river so that when it was low, people would be reminded again. There's no doubt, by the way, that this is a miracle For two reasons I would say that. It's not a coincidence that when the priests all came out, the river started flowing again. And two, it was like the Red Sea. It was like the Red Sea in verse 23. So this was a a miracle. And they had to remember it. And verse 6 of chapter 4 tells us that they were to serve as a sign. Why did they need a sign? Because forgetfulness is the enemy of faith. Forgetfulness is the enemy of faith. We know what God can do when we know what God has done. Don't we? We know what God can do when we know what God has done. And when we forget what God has done, we won't remember what God can do. If we read uh, through the Psalms, we'll see this happening a lot where Uh, the psalmist reminds themselves of attributes of God and things God has done. Two two, uh, examples, I'm not going to read the psalms, but for your own reference, 
Psalm 103, we looked at the last prayer meeting. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he lists. He forgives all all, all your sins. He heals your diseases. He redeems us from the pit. All those things. He reminds himself of the goodness of God. Then in Psalm 77, Asaph is in despair when he says, I remembered you, God, and goes on to remind himself of who God is. Forgetfulness is the enemy of faith. And we can do the same as those psalmists by reading and rereading our Bibles and remembering how great God is. So we can look at this story of God who parted the Red Sea Oh, sorry, the River Jordan. He also parted the Red Sea. That's a different story. Of the God who did this, and we can say, this is my God. Like we said earlier, the living God, the Lord of all the earth is the same God. But how easily we forget. How easily we forget also what the Lord Jesus has done for us. That's why we have the Lord's table. That's the stone of remembrance we have, the the sure sign that we have. That Lord Jesus instituted, he said to do this in remembrance of me. At the communion table, we remember that we are sinners saved by grace. We remember that we ought to be living for his glory and proclaiming his death till he comes. We remember that he is coming again. We remember that he has risen from the dead. We remember the great thing that God has done to save our souls. We remember. And we need constantly reminding because we so easily forget. And there's three groups of people in chapter 4 who need to be reminded by these stones of remembrance. First of all, in verse 6, among you, they needed remembering themselves. They needed remembering themselves, that generation. And you may say, well, if I was there, and I had seen God do this, there's no way I would forget. That's just pride. They may not well forget exactly what happened, but they can easily forget who did it. They can easily forget that it's God that's in control. They can easily know about it in their minds, but lose it from their hearts. Oh, how easily... We can do that ourselves, can't we? When God's word becomes an intellectual exercise and not a working on our hearts. When we come to the Lord's table in a short, uh, very short time, don't let this just be something that you know about in your head. Something that you know what to do going through the motions Let these things speak to your heart. May we read this and say, among us, among ourselves, may we be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, lest we forget what he has done. Stones of remembrance are a sign among you. But then in verse 6 and verse 21, we see that also that they are for the future generations. Verse 6 says, they are to serve a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them what God has done. And then in verse 21, 
in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them. And he explains what God has done. When the children saw the stones, they would ask, well, what's that doing there? And they would be told what God has done. The parents were to tell the children that God had cut off the flow of the Jordan. And the ark is mentioned again uh, there in verse 7. Tell the children that God did it. It was we, we, when the ark was there, when God was there, with God's presence, these waters parted. It was God. It wasn't, it wasn't your mum and dad that, that did this work. It was God that did the work. Tell them that God did it. He cut off the flow of this river. And there's a message for us here as parents, isn't there? And I'm going to specifically say fathers because in the original it says to the fathers. And I say fathers not to demean mothers but to say something that's been lost in our society and that is the headship of the father in the home. Fathers, it is our responsibility to teach our children the things of Christ and to teach our wives the things of Christ. The responsibility for mine and your children's spiritual growth is not with the Sunday school. It is not with the youth leaders or discoverers leaders. It is not even from the pulpit. The primary responsibility for your children's spiritual growth is you. Everything we say from here and everything we say in there should back up what's already been said at home. That's not to say that it's not important what we say here and what we say in there to the, in the Sunday school, but it should only back up what's being said at home. We should be teaching our children the things of Christ. Fathers, this is a struggle. I know it's a struggle because I've spoken to a number of, uh, of fathers and it's a struggle and I, and I recognize it's a struggle. I struggle with it. 50% of all the times I read the scriptures around my table are, are disasters. <laughs> it seems that way. I think, what's the point in doing it sometimes? Are they even listening? But you'd be surprised at what children pick up. But I encourage you, open your Bibles, tell them of Jesus. Read it to them. Tell them the stories. Tell them of your own experience. Tell them your testimony. Talk about Jesus. Pray with them. It's so important that we get, we get this. We, we understand this and we do this. And a word of encouragement from one failing father to, to, to another failing father. I'm assuming that there's no perfect fathers here, apart from the heavenly father. Sometimes I read the Bible with my family and I wonder, what on earth did I do that for? <laughs> that happens a lot. Like I say, probably 50% of the time. Sometimes I get asked questions that I don't know the answer to. But that's okay. I'll look it up and we'll discuss it later. And sometimes it just descends in, it can descend into chaos. It can. But stick with it. Stick with it because it's worth it. We need to be teaching our children the things of Christ. And wives, support your husbands in this. It's not an easy thing for him to do. Don't laugh when he makes mistakes. And teach your children too the wonderful things of Christ. And in fact, I feel so passionate about this that the next, the men's meeting in March, 
We'll talk about this some more in detail and we'll show some materials and things that you can use and helps in more practical ways. So I encourage you to come along to that. And if you're not a father with your own children, I would also encourage you, because we learned last week, don't we, that we are a church family. And as a church family, we all need to be teaching the children and telling them of Jesus. So it's important for all of us to pass on the good news of Jesus to the next generation. And I encourage you, um, men, to start doing something about it. And the final, uh, the final group of people that this was specifically related to, that needed to be reminded, was the world. Look at the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5. He did this so all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And then it talks about the kings who were melting in fear. They had no, no more courage to face the Israelites. They were scared because of what God has done. And we remember what God has done so we can remind others too of what God has done. Especially here, non-Christians. We tell them what God has done. We tell them who God is. And that's our mission, isn't it? We're told to tell others of what God has done. And we pray and pray and pray that God does a work of salvation in their hearts. And of course, that greatest of works of salvation is also, just like the parting of this river, a work of God, a miracle of God, when he opens the hearts of a sinner to receive Jesus. And as we do so, they respond in one of two ways. They respond with fear and repentance, or like the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and the Canaanite kings along the coast, they'll melt in fear, have no courage, but still reject God and still fight against him. Either way, either way we must tell them. I'll just end with a, a very brief uh, story. We've been uh, studying a little bit at home the life of George Muller. And many of you will know uh, about George Muller. He was a great man of faith who set up orphanages in Bristol uh, for, for, poor, for poor orphans who had nothing. But he had nothing himself. He lived by faith and God constantly supplied his need all the time. I mean, if you want to look at a man who literally stepped in, in the river, read the biography of George Mullis. Amazing stuff. But one thing he also did, he marked his moments. He marked when God answered prayer. He marked it. He wrote it down. And because he prayed so much, and because God supplied so much, the moments he marked were massive. And when they uh, look back on his life, when he, after he died at the age of 92, there was just reams and reams of stuff. Marked moments of the greatness of the things God has done for him. So I encourage you, if you want to be reminded, read your Bibles, but also just as an encouragement, mark the moments. Mark those times where God has answered prayer. Write them down. And then look back on them and say, God has, God has worked so much in my life. And I can tell you this, if you really were serious about it, you wouldn't have enough bits of paper to write on for all the things God has done. He's so good to us. God is good, isn't he? And we're going to remember 
what God has done as we come to the Lord's table. And we're going to sing uh, a song to remind us of the great work that Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to think upon the sacrifice that Jesus has made to save us from sin.